Here on Gadget Lab, we dive deep into the tech universe, tackling questions like, is giving companies access to your genetic material a good idea? And are the latest phone releases really that different than the last ones? We want to help you make informed decisions about what is worth your attention. And here's something that is undeniably worth your time, a digital subscription to Wired. Lucky for you, we are giving Gadget Lab listeners an exclusive discount, 20% off an annual subscription to Wired. Just visit Wired.com and use the promo code GL20 to get 20% off a digital subscription. Use GL20 to get exclusive access to stories on the latest innovations like AI, deepfakes, and VR, as well as today's most talked about people in technology. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Lauren. Mike. Lauren, have you discovered any good new restaurants lately? I have, as a matter of fact. And I found them on TikTok. 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 Yep. Not Google Maps. Nope. Not Yelp. Not, not Google Maps. TikTok. Yeah, that's what the kids these days are doing. They're using TikTok to search for everything. So you've been using TikTok to search for everything? Yeah, I decided I was going to give it a go. Do we need to have an intervention? <laughs> Quite possibly, <laughs> yes. All right. Well, let's talk about it. Let's do it. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Gadget Lab. I am Michael Calori. I'm a senior editor at Wired. And I'm Lauren Good. I'm a senior writer at Wired. We are also joined this week by Wired senior writer, Lily Hay Newman. Lily, welcome back to the show. Hello. I am here in the flesh. In the room. Yes. No Zoom, no headphones. Very exciting. No closet. <laughs> <laughs> the room is pretty small. So did you know that TikTok has a search function? People aren't just endlessly scrolling on TikTok. They're also using the platform as their go-to search tool. Google has obviously been the default option for search for about two decades now, but a lot of people, particularly younger people, now go to TikTok to find just about everything online. Places to eat and drink, travel tips, movie reviews, historical facts. It's all just part of what has made the app so huge. And all the attention that TikTok is enjoying is also why the app has made U.S. lawmakers nervous. We'll get to the real and imagined problems with TikTok later on in the show. But first, let's talk about its use as a search tool. Now, Lauren, for a couple of weeks, you forced yourself to only use TikTok's search box to find stuff online. Tell us about how that worked out. So to be totally upfront, 
I did cheat sometimes and I used Google. I was um, poly searcherous. Okay. Yeah. It was just impossible to do our jobs and to only use TikTok, but I was determined to give TikTok a go. I had heard that TikTok was really popular among young people for search. In fact, last year, a Google search executive said at a conference that he believed that 40% of younger people, you know, approximately age 18 to 24, are now turning to TikTok and Instagram for search instead of Google. This, of course, is very alarming to Google. And we're starting to see this thing happen where there's the rise of chat GPT and Google feels threatened by that for search. There's the rise of social search. Google has tweaked its app to make it look a little bit more like visual and fun and hip to like basically replicate the TikTok experience for search. Um, So Google is like hearing all of these competitors like kind of coming up in the rear. And meanwhile, young people are just like, TikTok, TikTok, TikTok. So, <laughs> so like, I was very interested in this. I wanted to give it a go. So I spent a week trying to primarily use TikTok for search. And so how did, how did it go? Were you able to find most of the things that you were looking for? You know, I had pretty low expectations, so I ended up pleasantly surprised. I found that it was pretty great for how-tos. I used it to figure out how to pair a new AirTag with my phone. Um, (laughs) In some ways, I found that to, yeah, Mike is laughing because he got me the AirTag because I I lose my keys all the time. And he's like really tired of me being like, Mike, have you seen my keys? Can I have the spare key? Um, Yeah, but in some ways, I found TikTok for how-tos to be better than YouTube even because... YouTube videos tend to be pretty long. Um, Some of the creators on YouTube are incentivized to do really long videos because that means the videos can support more ads. And so, I mean, sometimes it's like, yeah, like how to change a tire. You really want to like watch a whole long protracted thing, right? But on TikTok, when you search for something, all the search results appear in these video thumbnails, right? It's just like a page of like video thumbnails and then some like word chips in between. And you can basically get what you need from like a 30 second TikTok video and you don't even have to click on it because the thumbnail is live. Like the thumbnail's audio starts playing immediately. So I found like something like how to pair an AirTag. It was like the perfect use case for TikTok search. Um, Other things were like a little bit less, you know, less satisfying, I guess. Like it's probably not great for super verified facts, like vocabulary words, breaking news events. Like I wasn't looking like, you know, how to best San Francisco Bay Area financial advisors or something that I might like use Google for. Mike, there was one day when I was trying to look up something that was relevant to our job. I was like looking up information on Apple's business. I wanted to know how many retail employees Apple currently has. I found some funny parodies on TikTok of people having fun with like the Apple retail experience, but I couldn't find like the number of employees. So stuff like that, TikTok is still just going to fall short. I see. And how about location-aware searches? Not like, great. Really? So like if I searched for coffee shops near me, what would I get? Yeah, I did best coffee near me. And one of the top videos was a coffee shop in Koreatown, Los Angeles. So <laughs> not super close to me. Yeah, and you can't find things right down the street. No, I mean, when there was one day when I searched for a best San Francisco vegan restaurants. And so that was highly specific. And I was able to find some recommendations. Um, but you have to like watch the video then. You watch this like influencer being like, oh my God, here's my day going through the vegan restaurants in San Francisco. And it's, you know, it's like how much you trust this person. Is it SponCon? Like, yeah, it was, it was just a, a different experience when I was searching for local stuff, I would say. When you were talking about the length of YouTube videos and, you know, so for some things you really want to go through an entire tutorial, but for other things you just want to, you know, a quick clip. 
uh, I was thinking about how for a long time on certain how-tos, Google has had uh, like what we could maybe call a memoir recipe issue where certain things you look up are these recipes or, you know, how-tos that begin with like scrolling through thousands and thousands of words of just like details about the person's family holiday where they made the recipe and, you know, their kids like it or don't like it or here's how the, and you're just scrolling, scrolling. You know what I'm talking about, right? Yes. Yeah. I, I actually just went through this the other night. I was looking for like a, like, Italian baked fish recipe and like, never ask an Italian person for a recipe because you'll hear all their history. I say this as an Italian American, but yeah. And then after a while you realize, oh, this is for the display ads. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's definitely most common with recipes, but you see it with a lot of things. So I was just thinking like Google kind of has that problem with these certain types of how to's. YouTube has that problem. Definitely. I'm like, why does it need to be 20 minutes to show me how to I don't know, sew a button or something, you know, whatever. And TikTok is maybe paring that down. But do TikTok videos have a uh, duration limit? Last year, TikTok actually expanded the limit. So you can now upload a video as long as 10 minutes. But the whole culture of TikTok is really around short video clips. It's pretty twitchy. Right. So most of the results I found were, were short videos. Yeah, no, I totally. That makes sense. And we can talk about this more later in the show. But I don't use TikTok myself. I, I don't have it on my phone. But I see TikToks on posted on other social media platforms. <laughs> so right, I'm one of those TikTok lurkers or whatever it is. So it's been interesting to me that I have noticed that was my impression as someone who knows very little about TikTok that, you know, it's always very short. I assumed there was a constraint on how long the videos could be. But a few times lately, I've looked at, you know, I've clicked through to TikTok videos that were much longer than I expected or kind of kept going. Not 10 minutes, but I, I don't know if there's some sort of selection bias there because my sample is so small or if... People are playing with the form slightly more now that uh, it's allowed. And yeah, I would say with search too, you generally are when you search for something, you're looking for a quick right. answer. You're not necessarily looking for something very involved. Like all of the apps we're talking about have some form of search or are deeply linked to search. Like YouTube is very linked to Google search, right? And like social apps like Instagram now, it has an underlying search function, but it's like social search, right? And so when you think about all of these apps, like they are sort of um, verticalized in that way. And I found TikTok to be verticalized more than most because it's not really driving you to the open web in any way. Right. It is TikTok search is a portal to TikTok. Right. You're just getting more TikTok. And that's I think that's the thing that is difficult for me, like as a middle aged man <laughs> who's been using open web searches my whole life. To really understand, like people go to TikTok to search for things before they search for them on the open web because TikTok is their is like their portal into the internet, right? It's like when they think about the internet, they think about their TikTok experience primarily before probably other parts of the internet. And to me, that's like the really fascinating part is that that is the world to people in the same way that, you know, 10 years ago, maybe or eight years ago, Facebook was the world to a lot of people, you know, or way back in the day. AOL was the only website that anybody went to. So it's sort of the same thing, but in this case, it's just a little bit more unhinged because we're talking about TikTok. You Did know, you say unhinged? Yeah. It <laughs> doesn't have all of the stuff on it. It has, you know, like a pretty narrow subset of stuff on it. 
Shows what you know. Shows what I know. <laughs> well, you know, I do want to come back to one thing. You know, Lauren, at the beginning of this conversation, you mentioned that Google is feeling this pressure from TikTok because people are using it as a search tool. And they're feeling pressure from uh, AI-powered searches that like Microsoft is investing in, um, like OpenAI and ChatGPT and those technologies. So we probably will see Google's main search product fundamentally change to better compete with those in more ways than it already has, right? Yeah, and these are changes that we're likely to see both on the user experience side of things and under the hood. Because Google is reportedly calling a code red right now. It's so concerned about ChatGPT. It's so concerned about these consumer-facing AI apps that people are starting to gravitate towards that it's realizing it needs to like, it, you know, Google is like one of the leaders in AI, but it hasn't necessarily utilized it in the same way that some of these other companies have. And so it's realizing that it needs to like corral the troops and be like, how are we going to actually use all of this incredibly smart artificial intelligence that we have, that we have created, that we've patented, and deploy it in a way that keeps people in our search engine? But they have to also make sort of user-facing changes, right? And like they're like you see that evolution of Google happening right now because they're basically borrowing features from services like TikTok. And and one other thing I want to ask you both about is. You know, on Facebook, search, I don't know if anyone has used search on Facebook lately, but it's not very usable, I find. It's it's really difficult to sort of find what you're looking for, even when you're trying to search in a social way, just like, who do I know who lives in Paris or whatever? You know, who am I friends with who went to this school or whatever? And I believe the reason for that is that, you know, Facebook had a huge sort of data privacy saga with the social graph that the the search was just leaking way too much uh, and you know compromising too much information by revealing you could say i think you used to be able to do queries like who are friends of my friends who live in this place or something and it would expose things that people didn't realize they had set to be revealed you know at mm. multiple degrees of separation and things like that so i think they had to really tighten that up but as a result it's really hard to use facebook search for anything uh helpful and i i wonder kind of how all of this is going to play out for both google and tiktok you know what people are searching for and what results they get is a big data privacy question always uh, Lily, bringing it back to data privacy. I love it. I'm yeah, trying to I do think, the transition for everyone. <laughs> I, I, would, I would say that if the past two decades of search have been just about serving up what you're looking for, the next era of search is going to be about understanding you and even generating some information or some searches for you, right? Like we've seen this move towards personalization over the past, you know, 10 years or so. And so all these companies are racing to figure out how they can personalize your searches and get to know you better to serve you the thing that to basically understand you. Mm -hmm. And then with ChatGPT and other applications like it, it's about actually creating the thing for you. It's not about crawling the web and pulling in web pages. It's about like crafting the answer seemingly out of thin air, right? It's generating it. With ChatGPT, one thing that's different is you, you can really ask it the exact question you really want the answer to. Whereas with Google, there's a way to craft queries to try to get the answer you want. But with ChatGPT, it's that natural language thing where you can just directly ask it anything and let it deal with 
figuring out what you're trying to say. That's like sort of built into it. So, I mean, that personalization starts to, it's like coming and going. They're trying to serve it to you and you also get to ask in the exact way you would want to. It's your dream search engine. <laughs> I can search my dreams. <laughs> All right, let's take a break and we'll be right back. This podcast is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Each episode features insight you won't find anywhere else from the center of the conversation surrounding emerging technologies like AI. Right now on the podcast, you can hear a special episode where Brad Smith lays out Microsoft's vision for a vibrant marketplace driving the new AI economy. To hear more, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Luna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. TikTok is obviously very popular, but it's also become popular to criticize. Over the past few years, and especially over the past few months, TikTok has been scrutinized by the U.S. government and other governments around the world. This is mostly because TikTok's parent company, ByteDance, is based in China and therefore has to abide by that country's notoriously intrusive national security laws. TikTok has said that the data of its U.S. users are stored on U.S. servers, but recently, the company admitted that some of its employees improperly access the data of U.S. journalists. Because of these concerns, TikTok is now being banned in some schools and on some government devices. The debate over a wholesale ban of the app in the U.S. is heating up again in Washington, D.C. for what feels like the fourth or fifth time. Lily, you cover cybersecurity at Wired. Are these fears about TikTok as a security threat founded? There are a few like basic uh, or conceptual things here. One is the potential that the government of China could force ByteDance to force U.S. TikTok to use the platform for influence operations, right? That, you know, this mysterious algorithm that powers TikTok and chooses what you're going to see and, you know, what the order of the videos is going to be and stuff could be exploited uh, to spread like certain types of information or seed certain types of information. And I think that concern is real. But I would just add, we've already seen that from many governments <laughs> on many social media platforms, right? You know, that's the whole thing that's been going on for all these years that we've been talking about, you know, and that, that was the sort of big revelation is that social media platforms can be weaponized by different governments or different interests, you know, whatever those may be for disinformation, misinformation. So it's not to say it's not a concern. It's just like like we just need to see zoom out even farther and see the even bigger context that that's already a problem anyway. And like the Chinese government has is one of the actors or the players in that uh, already on many platforms. 
One thing I wonder about the influence operation point, uh, just before we go to the other point, is um, whether the U.S. has concerns that there is sort of a, an imbalance, like a power imbalance because of TikTok's popularity in the U.S., that perhaps you know U.S. intelligence feels that they don't have a similar mechanism that they control so completely mm. to influence the Chinese population if they chose to, or to sort of spread influence through a platform that is very, you know, popular in China or Southeast Asia more broadly. For example, like WeChat is the incredibly like popular and ubiquitous communication platform, but also social media platform yeah. uh, in China. And it's completely possible, even perhaps probable that, you know, U.S. intelligence has like some type of persistence within WeChat, but it's not a U.S. company, you know, they right. don't like own uh, WeChat. So it's a completely different thing. So perhaps there's some asymmetry there that's like driving some of this concern. It's a doomsday gap. Yes. Like in Dr. Strangelove. I, right. You see what I mean? <laughs> Uh, maybe, you know, so, so I just want to raise that. I, I don't, you know, that's sort of when I'm like sitting here stroking my beard about why everyone's flipping out about TikTok, like maybe <laughs> that's part of it. Yeah. But then the other just general point is like data collection and just an entity like owning an app that everybody has downloaded on their phone. You know, it's not to say that the TikTok app is like currently weaponized or currently a backdoor, you know, into your phone or anything like that, but it opens up the potential that a rogue actor or, you know, whoever owns an app could use it for ill. <laughs> right. I think that's always been my next question about yeah. TikTok. Let's say that our data is not entirely stored on US servers, let's just say and that the Chinese government does end up with access to all of the U.S. user data. And you mentioned these potential harms or ills. Like, what actually could happen there? What's the, what's the worst case scenario? So some of the data that a company would get access to, theoretically, like anyone could have access to if they were, were wanting to scrape everything off of a site and like just get everyone's information. But scraping, incidents of scraping happen like all the time on on all social media platforms. So so things like what you're doing, you know, what you're up to, what you're depicting in your videos, who's in your family, like, you know, who who shows up in your videos, stuff like that. And then additionally, uh, you know, the service has access to the personal information you use to make an account, you know, things like your location data related to your IP address, potentially other data that you're approving to share with the app. And taken in combination, all of that starts to provide sort of a, a profile, but like a, a, a picture, a larger picture of uh, who you are and what you have going on in your life. So it means that for a Chinese-owned company like ByteDance, they're potentially getting a lot of information about Americans and not just Americans, like about people who use TikTok all over the world. But I, I also just want to add on this point that tons of information is available about all of us 
you know, and able to be grabbed or bought in a bunch of ways anyway, right? Like there's a lot of information that governments and, you know, nations can sort of hoard from their own domestic surveillance or international surveillance. Uh, there's a lot of information they can gather from criminal forums, data breaches. There's a lot of information they can buy from data brokers and marketers. And China, as in particular, has been incredibly aggressive about breaching foreign companies, including U.S. companies and government agencies, including U.S. government agencies, and stealing like huge, huge, huge amounts of data about people all over the world and about Americans. So again, it's not to say stuff with TikTok isn't important to think about and talk about and that there isn't a potential threat there. It's just like we also always need to zoom out even farther and look at the even bigger picture that if we're worried about this, it's just one portion of a broader concern about the amount of data China has on each individual in the U.S. or each individual in the world. Mm. I think a lot of the sort of fear that's being stoked has to do with the fact that it's an app that young people yeah. are, are particularly heavy users of, right? So the fact that like my children's data is being sucked up by China is a lot more of, it feels like more of a threat to a lot of people, right? Yeah. Uh, which is why, you know, we're seeing bans in schools. And by the way, the bans in schools are basically the school's Wi-Fi just blocks the domain. So if you want to just use it on your own cell service, you can use it on your own cell service, or you can find other obfuscation methods that make it look like you're not looking at TikTok and still look at TikTok. So the school bans are very, uh, what's the word? Anodyne? Is it the right word? Uh, but you know, I think that's why we're seeing that the conversation start there, right? It's starting with legislation to protect the children. Won't right. somebody think of the children? There's a lot of that. But I, I do think it's important to understand that like adults should be worried too, but they should not necessarily only be worried about TikTok. Right. And, you know, we've seen a lot of bans in the U.S. more and more on like TikTok can't be on government phones or, you know, certain states have said like TikTok can't be on uh, state devices or, or things like that. And fine. I mean, you know, like that seems fine. Right. Like we ban a lot of things on government devices, like, for example, the, you know, antivirus maker Kaspersky is banned on government federal devices because uh, it's owned by Russia. Right. And Mike, when you were talking about kids, won't someone think of the children? <laughs> I No, I think it's it's what's it ties into something else you've said before, which is that when we were talking about search about how TikTok is really sort of a portal or like the platform that younger people are thinking about when they think about the internet, like it's it's the way station to everything or the on-ramp, it's worth noting that, you know, when that's your orientation, you know, you're, you're not necessarily thinking about, well, what does it show about me if I if show what vet I take my family dog to in, in a video, a funny video, and, you, you know, you're not, because it's just, that's the internet to you. You're just thinking like, I'm posting for my friends. Culturally, this is what everyone does. I'm posting for the world. I want people to see my daily life. And so even though it isn't unique to TikTok, TikTok may have some special considerations because 
of its you know ultimate ownership and it's just useful or sort of helpful for kids to be aware of that and just for all of us to be having this conversation uh so that you know everyone has the opportunity to like think through these things critically including the teens mm. who absolutely are you know capable of getting what we're talking about here <laughs> <laughs> fully <laughs> Fully. <laughs> I agree with you that I think teens who are old enough to be on TikTok and like wield all these social media tools are certainly old enough to grasp some of the concepts we're putting forward. And yet I think some of them would still probably choose to use these apps than, than heed the government concerns. I don't think the U.S. government has fully made the case to the U.S. public of why they're so concerned about this. I'm not saying we can't imagine some of what they're talking about. And, you know, we just talked through a bunch of things, but they either know something that we don't or they don't. And it would be helpful to have a little bit more of an understanding or like, a you know, uh, some sort of qualitative nudge mm. from the White House, you know, or Congress on like how pressing is this concern and think, what are we specifically talking about? I think we'll get both of those things, right? Because we do know that there is an executive order coming at yeah. some point, most likely, right? And there will probably be congressional hearings about yeah. TikTok bans, potential TikTok bans that hopefully would lay out on national television all of the concerns and how dire they are. Because congressional hearings do always clearly and directly lay out exactly. <laughs> Crystal clarity every single time. Yeah. Senator, we sell ads. Yeah. <laughs> Senator, I'm not selling your data. Well, I'm, that's what I'm curious to see. And I think, you know, teens or anyone else who's feeling like, okay, I kind of get it. But what exactly are we talking about? I just think that's a very valid uh, way to feel. Yeah. All right, let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll do our recommendations. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? Come on, of course you do. Introducing The Jordan Harbinger Show. The Jordan Harbinger Show, which Apple named one of its best of 2018, is aimed at making you a better informed, more critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening, even inside your own brain. Jordan dives into the minds of fascinating people, from athletes, authors, and scientists, to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, B as in boy, I, N as in Nancy, G-E-R, in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. All right. This is the third part of our show where we recommend things that our listeners might enjoy. Lily, you are our guest in person. Please tell us what is your recommendation? Okay. So my recommendation is the book, You Are Not Expected to Understand This, How 26 Lines of Code Changed the World. Uh, this is a self-serving recommendation because the book is uh, a collection of essays edited by the incredible Tori Bosch, who works at Slate, uh, the New America Foundation, and Arizona State University. Uh, and I am one of the authors in the collection. Hey, now. Hey. Uh, so 
But I also think the book is really great, uh, you know, because since it's, you know, all the chapters are by different authors, I got to sort of read and enjoy it too. And uh, I was really impressed with some of the stuff that's in it. Uh, It's a collection that's looking at sort of these individual lines of code that were really influential. Uh, So the one I wrote is about uh, the tracking pixel and you know the the ubiquity of this image file or you know single pixel that no one's ever seen it's like this viral thing that you know is it's like did you open an email or you know did you load a web page or whatever and it just uh is this like hidden specter right everywhere on the internet <laughs> so that's the one i wrote about I'm, it's always always a fun time with stuff i'm writing uh, <laughs> But, you know, there's also <laughs> things about uh, – the, the, they're laughing because it's so true. <laughs> Doom and gloom. Uh, there's also um, stuff about, like, the Apollo 11 code, uh, the most famous comment in Unix history, uh, the operating system Unix, um, stuff about Internet Relay Chat, IRC, for uh, people who have been IMing since the old days. Yeah. And oh, pop-ups, just awesome. It's like really fun, very interesting and kind of runs the gamut. And it's not all about <laughs> privacy concerns, uh, though it's there's a good representation of that stuff if you're into that. Uh, so yeah, highly recommend the book. And uh, I just think it's like a a cool grab bag kind of. You tech. are not expected to understand this. Yes. That's what it's called. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if there's an essay in there about the first banner ad. Oh, mm. wasn't that on Wired? It was. It was on Wired.com. Well, read it, read it on Wired. Now you're creating conflicting interests for me. <laughs> read, read it on Wired.com first. <laughs> Didn't we also come up with, was it crowdfunding or crowdsourcing? Uh, crowdsource. Crowdsource. Yeah. Yeah, crowdsource. Yeah. Mark and Robinson. Yep. 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 Yeah. Yeah. To be clear, Wired is great. Wired is great. <laughs> but also this book is great. <laughs> And congrats on being a part of it. Thanks. That's really cool. Yeah, it's very, very fun uh, and just a really great group of authors. And I think Tori did an amazing job editing it. So, Lauren, what is your recommendation? My recommendation is also a book of a very different nature. It is called, brace yourself for the title, I'm Glad My Mom Died. It is a memoir by the child actress Jeanette McCurdy. I just finished it this week. And it's as great as everyone's been saying it is. Jeanette was on um, iCarly on Nickelodeon for, I think, about a decade. She played Sam, the character Sam, on that show. But the book is really about how she was like coerced into being a child actress. It wasn't something that she particularly liked to do. She had a really uh, domineering stage mom who also encouraged her to have an eating disorder. Um, it was a really complicated and abusive relationship. And Jeanette is now, you know, she's well past her iCarly years. She's a writer. She's a podcaster. She's decided to put aside acting because it isn't really where her heart is. And she decided to write this memoir about her experience as a child actor in Hollywood and about her mom. And it's it's really good. It's brutally honest. It's uncomfortable at times. You know, some people described it as funny. I There are moments of humor, but I, I didn't find it actually, like, funny. Uh, it's It's pretty dark at times. But it's um it's a really worthwhile read. So I recommend that. Nice. I'm glad my mom died. <laughs> nice. Mom, if you're listening, this book is not about you. <laughs> Nor is my recommendation. My mom does listen to this podcast. So like the other week she was like, you mentioned my stove. So I know that she listens. 
Nice. Mike, what's your recommendation? Um, I'm going to recommend classic Doctor Who. Nice. Doctor Who is celebrating its 60th birthday this year. It started um, in November of 1963, the day after the JFK assassination was the very first Doctor Who broadcast in uh, in the UK. Um, I love old Doctor Who because I grew up on it. You know, it was on, I think, on Sunday afternoons on my local PBS channel, like the whole time that I was in uh, grade school and junior high school. And my Doctor Who fandom has um, perpetuated well into middle age. <laughs> so... I think it is a really fun science fiction show because a lot of the themes that we see in modern science fiction, you know, originated in this sort of soup of radio dramas and television shows and novels that were not taken seriously in the middle of the century. Uh, Doctor Who was one of the first series that was taken seriously by adults. It was still seen as a kid's show well into its run, but, you know, obviously also very popular with the kids' parents because they everybody would watch it together. So as a child, I loved Doctor Who. And uh, as I've grown older, its themes have only become richer. So for a very long time, you couldn't watch all of the episodes unless you bought all the DVDs, right? We're talking like thousands of dollars to buy all of the DVDs or the Blu-rays of all the old episodes. Now you can watch like almost every single episode of the show's original run, which was from 1963 to 1987 on the internet, on BritBox. I didn't even know there was such a thing as BritBox. Yeah, BritBox is like all the BBC stuff. I love BritBox. Yeah. And I think also some ITV. But yeah, BritBox is awesome. It's $8 a month and you can watch all the Doctor Whos. So each episode is 25 minutes, but uh, it's serialized. So a story will play out over three or four or five or six episodes. The stories are all different lengths. So you can decide that you want an hour and a half Doctor Who experience or you want a two and a half hour Doctor Who experience uh, every time you watch the show. Uh, And you can pick the very old black and white ones. You can pick the super awesome cheesy ones from the 70s. uh, Or you can pick the ones uh, that were very cutting edge and also still cheesy from the 80s. So, yeah, highly recommended if you haven't gone back and watched some of those. This is a great recommendation. Also, what's the current? There's a new doctor, right? Yeah. So it's rebooted. Right. Um, I mean, I know this is the thing with Doctor Who, but what's the current? (laughs) Yeah. The Doctor regenerates. The Doctor regenerates. It's been the same Doctor. The Doctor doesn't die. Uh, They just assume a new life and they assume a new body, which is a brilliant, brilliant way to write in recasting the title character of your show, by the way. The reboot started in 2005 when they revived the show with Christopher Eccleston playing, I think it's the ninth Doctor. And now, you know, we're up into the the teens of Doctors. I see. So just because a new Doctor starts doesn't mean it's sort of a new show. Correct. It The show can just be running with new Doctors. Correct. And some of the supporting characters overlap. Right. You know, so there will be supporting characters that hang out with Doctor number three and Doctor number four and right. Doctor number five. So, yeah, it's a... Uh, it's it's a whole universe. Yeah, it's something I've I appreciate this recommendation because I have really been wanting to delve into Doctor Who. I feel like no one will be surprised to learn that I'm a Trekkie, <laughs> <laughs> a Trekker or a Trekkie. Uh, it seems I, I've yeah I've watched all 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 of all Star Trek, including 
very painfully bad Star Trek and enjoyed it. So I feel that Doctor Who is really next and like mm-hmm. honestly a massive oversight in my personal viewership. So thank you for this. Great. I'll, I'll recommend specific serials to you if you're interested. Yes. And uh, Lauren, I definitely will not share my BritBox password with you later from both a security oh. and account sharing Please don't. That would yeah. be so wrong. Yeah. I agree. <laughs> That would be ethically dubious. Well, I look forward to not watching BritBox when I'm not reading celebrity memoirs. Or searching on TikTok. Or searching on TikTok. All Did right. I like destroy the nerd cred of this podcast? No. Okay. You're really helping us, to be honest. Yeah. All right. That is our show for this week. Lily, thank you again for joining us. It's my pleasure to be here. It's so great to have you in studio. Thanks. And thank you all for listening. If you have feedback, you can find all of us on Twitter and TikTok and Mastodon. Just check the show notes. Lily's not on TikTok. (laughs) All of us. Were you listening during the podcast? Readers can check. (laughs) Our producer is Boone Ashworth. We will be back next week. Goodbye. Hackers and cybercriminals have always held this kind of special fascination. Obviously, I can't tell you too much about what I do. It's a game. Who's the best hacker? And I was like, well, this is child's play. I'm Dina Temple-Raston, and on the Click Here podcast, you'll meet them and the people trying to stop them. We're not afraid of the attack. We're afraid of the creativity and the intelligence of the human being behind it. Click Here, stories about the people making and breaking our digital world. AI machines, satellite, engine ignition, click here, and liftoff. Click here, every Tuesday and Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. From PR.